right. Well, we're now, you missed, if you missed last Sunday, you missed the hot button topic of baptism. Now we're out of the Lord's Supper. That's less of a controversial topic. Unless you consider church history. Because of the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the one that has the most historical, let's go to even bloodshed, is the Lord's Supper. That's the most fought over thing. There isn't really a big beef over baptism until you get to about the late 1500s and then the 1600s, and then it's done by the 1700s. But prior to all of that, going back to like the first century, we have problems with the Lord's Supper. I mean, the book of 1 Corinthians, of all the lists of of, uh, issues that that church has, one of them in chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians is about the Lord's Supper that what they were doing is it was, it was uh, their practice to have a meal around a table, but what they would do is the wealthy people would bring food for themselves and the poor people wouldn't have enough and they would starve and then the wealthy people would gorge and then even get drunk at the Lord's Supper. So that's a, that's a problem, obviously. And then you have the book of Jude and by the time the book of Jude is coming around, persecution is beginning to ramp up in the Roman Empire onto the people of God, and they're starting to call uh, their love feasts, which is a shorthand kind of uh, common way to refer to the Lord. They're saying, oh, they're calling it love feasts? They're having orgies in there. Or they're calling it, you know, they're taking a part of the body of their God? They're cannibals. So Jude's having to deal with that issue, the, the accusations against the church, and then it's not too long after that. I mean, that's, that's in the first century, so that's up to year 100 or so. And then when you get past year 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, now you're starting to get the Roman uh, error of transubstantiation. You know what I mean when I say that? That's the Catholic perspective that what happens in the Lord's Supper is that the, the wafer is turned into the body of Christ as soon as you put it into your mouth. It actually becomes his meat. And that every Sunday, he's pulled down off the cross and sacrificed again for you. But you're not really good enough to drink the blood of Christ. That's not, so we'll do that as priests, but y'all can just eat this wafer. So it gets to become this uh, twisted perspective, but then it also becomes weaponized. Because if you don't take the Lord's Supper in the Roman system, now your eternal destination is now in jeopardy. And so then when you have Charlemagne, who is French, but he's the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman, uh, but it was an empire, he gets excommunicated by the Pope, and that means his whole country is going to hell. His whole civilization is going to hell because none of them can take communion. So he has to grovel outside Pope Francis's, or not Pope Francis, the current Pope, uh, the Pope bends his window and uh, in the snow and in the cold for three days until the Pope finally says, okay, you've been humiliated enough, I'll let you back in, and everybody else, a part of you, they can go to heaven now because they could take the Mass, the Lord's Supper. So then, as that's kind of, that perversion is reaching its peak, something explodes called the Protestant Reformation. Now, in the Protestant Reformation, it was not as unified as we would have liked it to be. You have three big dogs in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, 
Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin. They all three have different perspectives on what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. So you, if you have Rome way over here, transubstantiation, meaning that when you eat that wafer, it turns into Jesus' body, and you have to eat it in order to be saved. Then you have the far end of the other side of the spectrum is Ulrich Zwingli. He's a German-speaking guy, but he's in Switzerland. He says the Lord's Supper is just a memorial. It's just a, a, a thing that we memorialize and remember Christ's sacrifice. Then in the middle, you have two... Uh, mediating perspective. So closer to Rome, but not all the way there, is Martin Luther. He posits this consubstantiation, that the body of Christ is in, around, above, and over the elements. And it has something to do with your salvation. Very unspecific, though. Very not, not nailed down and as clear as Rome. Then you have Calvin. So he's between Luther and Zwingli. He says, no, it's, it's, it's not just a, a bare memorial, but there's nothing else going on there with Christ's physical body or adding to your salvation, but there's something spiritual about it. There's something that does happen to us that is good for us. And so that's the, the layout of the land. And when the shorter catechism is written, it's written from a Calvinistic perspective because it's just less than 100 years after Calvin's death that, it, that, that this gets written, and it takes that perspective on it, which I think is a good perspective. So the reason why, so questions 96 and 97, the reasons why they're in here, and there are only two. The larger catechism has a bunch more questions that deal with it. But these two, you got to deal with it because, remember, the Schutter catechism is written for kids. It's for kids to memorize who grow up in the church. And then secondly, it's for new converts to help just instruct them on the basics of the faith. This is basic Christianity. So what do you need to know of the basics of the Lord's Supper? You need to know what it is, and you need to know who can take it. That, those are the two big items that you have to deal with, and those are the two questions that we're going to be wrestling with. And what they really do now is they address two big problems within modern evangelicalism as it concerns the Lord's Supper is we don't know what the Lord's Supper is. And secondly, we don't know how it should be practiced. The big question is, should we care? And the answer is yes to that one. I'll tell you that one right now. All right, so let's look at the first one. Number 96. Question goes, as you would assume, what is the Lord's Supper? And then here is the answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. We talked about that, what that word means a couple of weeks ago. So it's a sacrament wherein... By giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporal or carnal manner, meaning bodily or fleshly, but they are by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So we'll break that down. Don't, don't worry about it. But here's the proof texts that they cite. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. These will sound familiar. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what I read every Sunday as we take it. Now, that's one of their proof texts. They have another one, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That verse leads you to believe that something spiritual is happening when we take the Lord's Supper. Well, we can, we can trivialize it and we can over-spiritualize it, but just based on 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we're participating somehow with the body and the blood of Christ. Now, to say that it's a physical alteration is nonsense. I was reading Calvin on this, and he was like, or no, no, it was Thomas Watson, the Puritan. He was saying, we all know what meat tastes like, and it doesn't taste like meat when they put it in your mouth. And, I mean, just the simplicity of it all and seeing uh, status or uh, physical statuses change, the silliness of that. Like, we, we know that that's not there, but we also know that it's got to be more than just like a, eh, it's kind of like a flag. It just kind of tells you who we are. It's got to be more than that, that, that what we would see, as we've seen it before earlier in the questions in the catechism, is a means of grace, that God's grace is, is, is uh, delivered to us, not saving grace, but sanctifying grace, through channels, right? So the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, fellowship with one another, prayer, all of those things, we would know that's good to me. That's God's grace building up into me. And, and the Lord's Supper or communion or the Lord's table, whatever we would call it, it's one of those things. It's spiritual nourishment for pilgrims, which is why it's to be done over and over again, similar to Passover, which is to be eaten every year over and over again. Now, if it's not sanctifying us, then something is wrong. That's what the answer is all about, that it's sanctifying, it's, it's building, it's bringing benefits to us and the last phrase is, and growth in grace. It's supposed to be doing that. Now, how would it do that? How would eating this, which we do now in just a, a cracker and some juice, but I know pastors and churches who they all sit around a table, the front of the church, and you pass a cup and you pass a piece of bread. You're looking across the table at your church members and your friends. I, I guess it's a healthy thing to think about taking this all together. So how does it sanctify us? What should it do? What it should do when we see those, the, the sparkling red and we feel the, just the, the real matter of the bread, there should be some cognizance of guilt. That I did something for, for these symbols of brutality to be in my hands. This is not a healthy body that we're remembering. It's a shredded corpse that we're remembering. But then we should also be blessed by grace every time, knowing that Jesus doesn't hold it over me. He didn't even hold it over Thomas, who doubted his resurrection and doubted his real body to be able to come back. So we should be overwhelmed by grace. So it's meant to 
humble us and glorify God every time and to build into us a sober joy that we never forget our sin, but our sin is always washed out by grace of God. And what we want to do is the temptation is to either fixate on our sin or fixate on our grace. What the Lord's Supper is saying, we, we, we think of both and we acknowledge the, the uh, power of both, that sin is weaker than grace. Grace is infinitely more powerful and crushes it out. So that sanctifies us. But now this us that we keep saying needs to be addressed. So question 97 says this, what is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you asked even just the most generic evangelical that, how do you take the Lord's Supper in a worthy way? What do you have to do to make yourself worthy or rather to practice it in a worthy way? That wouldn't even comprehend. And we saw that in COVID, did we not? You got people on video screens saying, yeah, just grab some orange soda and some Cheetos and we'll do some communion. It's, it's fine. No concept of a worthy manner for this. Really, we don't think about that in church at all. What's the worthy way to hear the word preached? What's the worthy way to read the word? How, how, how am I worthy to pray? Certainly with this worthiness, we should think about it because the Bible has a lot to say. So here's the answer. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest, meaning unless, coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Now that last phrase is just straight plagiarism of the Bible, which we'll get to. So the short answer to that question is, what is required of the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper, meaning not everyone can take the Lord's Supper every time. You, there's some things that need to go into this, to evaluating this. What is it to take it worthily? To take it worthily means two things. To receive it with due preparation, meaning the preparation that it deserves. And secondly, with a suitable behavior when you're at the Lord's table, not, not meaning like you have good table manners or that you hold it in a certain way or you respect it like in the, the Roman church, that you can't chew it. You have to just let it dissolve. I'm not talking about that. It's, it's your heart in the moment that that matters according to the scriptures. So let's look at a few. The first element that they give us a verse for is self-examination, that we should examine ourselves before taking it, or 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, says it as plainly as possible. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, which we do weekly, your heart should be examined. Every time. The supper should be a regular confrontation with unconfessed sin. Now, when we say that, that sounds heavy-handed and judgmental in just our modern evangelical world, but it, it's only heavy-handed and judgmental if there is no forgiveness of sins. But if I know that my sins are forgiven, then shouldn't I want a regular 
perhaps even weekly, rooting out of my heart of where is their sin hiding, Lord? I don't want it. Like Achan in Joshua who hides uh, the spoils that he wasn't supposed to take from the war. I don't want sin in the camp. I want it all out. So thank you for this moment that I'm confronted with it because what I'll do on my own is hide from it. What I'll do from on my own is deny that it exists. So we should be confronted with it, forcing God's people to consider personal holiness and use that moment as a moment to repent. Do we not need to confess sins even on the other side of the cross? Absolutely. Do we not need to be reminded that there is grace for us? Then self-examination shouldn't bother us at all. Secondly, the answer talks about the necessity of the presence of faith. And it quotes this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? First of all, what we need to do is, am I even saved? Now, this is a good thing to work through. We know people who can get wrapped up in their own salvation and never think that they are saved. We understand that. And we would counsel differently in that. But this verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, is still true. Here's here's where we've come to be in modern evangelicalism. This verse is anathema. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to do this. The worst thing that you could ever do is doubt your salvation or examine your own salvation, your own conversion. And I think that's because we have placed upon God a wrong understanding of who he is. We think of him like an earthly father, an earthly parent. And if if I'm questioning whether or not I'm saved, what I'm really questioning is whether or not my father loves me. That's not what we're talking about. That's not in this issue at all. Because when we run to somebody who is wrestling with their own salvation, what we're really thinking is that you don't believe God really loves you. That's not what we're after. We're after is, have you repented and trusted in Christ? That's what we're after. That's not the other way around, but because we've made, and you can just look at the popular books that exist about God, he's just our mushy, you know, sky daddy, that he's just up there, he's just so concerned with your life and exactly how it should go and how he can help you achieve your dreams. That he gave, that you, that we've, when somebody doubts the salvation, it's like you're doubting God's love. No, we're not. I'm just being honest about my sinfulness. And whether or not that is, and then the bigger problem is, so you examine yourself and you say, I don't think that I'm saved. Do you want to be? Then repent and believe now. Right now, it's right here for you. So that the Lord's Supper, it could be leading people to Christ. I don't think that I am. Now, we know that there are plenty of people who are genuinely converted and struggle with their assurance of faith. That's not really what we're dealing with here, but we will get there. So the, the third thing is, the, is, is it, that it talks to us to examine our repentance. It's 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now that gets difficult when you're translating from Greek and English, but... Uh, when we judged ourselves, if we evaluated ourselves rightly, we would not be condemned by God. That's what that verse means. When it says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You know, we evaluated ourselves and really understood and, and really got down to the truth, then God would not judge us because he wants to extend grace for all who call upon his name. 
So we have to consider our repentance. Was it real or was it just fleeting emotion? We've all seen that a thousand times with people. That wasn't real repentance. That was just, I felt bad at a time. I mean, there, was, there was a guy who showed up one, this was about a year ago. He was staying at Motel 6, just got out of jail, showed up to church. And what he wanted to do was just tell somebody who was a spiritual person, a pastor, that he's turned his life around. But I wasn't, I wasn't here for that. I'm not here to say, oh, good, brother, I'm so glad to hear that. That's exciting. I was like, why? What are you doing? This repentance is not, and according to, to this, what saves you, this is just, hey, I'm serious this time. So evaluating your repentance is good. Not looking for perfect repentance. Nobody's going to have that. We're always going to, uh, if you took a snapshot of our lives, look like you don't believe at all. You don't repent at all. But over the long haul of our lives, do we have an authentic repentance? Fourthly, it says our love, we need to evaluate our love. Do we have a true love of God? And the cited verse is 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't say anything about loving God. I was confused by this verse being cited by these Westminster divines, but my default position is they're smarter than me. So I got to figure out why they would put this verse here. And then it, of course, comes to me. If you love God, you will love his church. And that last verse, verse 17, it talks about we are one body, we partake of one bread. If I'm not reconciled to the church, then how can I be reconciled to God? In fact, the Bible says that. This is not cited in the Shorter Catechism, but it's in our Bibles, 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, not biologically, but Christologically, if you're Christian brother and sister, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean, this is the most obvious manifestation. I can't tell if you love God in any other way unless I see that love acted out towards other Christians. I can't see it. If I just told you, go love God right now, well, what would you do? If you're a pagan and you're worshiping Baal and you want him to rain down fire, you start cutting your arms and making yourself bleed. Like, look how serious I am, Baal. Or if you're worshiping the God Molech, look how much I love you. Look, I'll put my child in the fire and burn them alive. That's how much I love you. But how do we show that? By loving each other. That's how we do it. The church. That's who we're going to take communion with. And it goes along to say that if you have no love for the church, you have no love for God. In the same way as somebody who says, man, I, I, I love you, brother, but I hate your wife. Good night. She is a nightmare. Then you don't love him. Right? Because what husband goes, ah, I get it. Yeah. You know, no, we're one flesh. If you hate her, you hate me. We're done. But everybody says that. Oh, I love God. I just hate the church. I just love Jesus. I hate his church. He's the bride. She's the bride of Christ. We get to do that. So that's why that, that's what that's after. Do I love the church? Then we can see it. Then it talks about our obedience in that answer, a real desire to obey. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, 
Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, meaning the Lord's Supper, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, disobedience, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I want to obey sincerely. Holiness for me and, and, and um, obedience for me, this is what any believer should say, is not a burden. I may fail at it, but I don't hate it. I don't, I don't go look at, oh, did I obey God's word again today? Man, I got to do what the Heavenly Father would want me to do today. Oh, I got you know, to not do my heart's desires, but do his heart's desires. Oh, if that's a burden for you, then he's not your father. The desire to obey, not the consistent, perfect execution of obedience. The desire to obey, the long to be less sinful and more, more Christ-like. That's what we should be examining as we take the supper. Then lastly, what, what it said was, if you, if you have the answer there with you, that if you come unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And that's straight out of 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 through 30. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, now listen to this next verse and just take it at face value like we take the scriptures. That is why, what is why? Previous context is examining yourself and eating and drinking judgment to yourself. So not doing that, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Wait, what? There, this is repercussions for not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? Now, we can't say that this is typical of God because we only have one execution in church ever recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 5. But here we see 1 Corinthians. This church was messed up. Now, they also had uh, the gift of tongues and prophecy and all these kinds of things. So there's, there's an era shifting at this time, but nevertheless, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. If God's ever put somebody to death for something in the Bible, should it still be serious to us? So adultery, homosexuality, uh, disobedience to parents, that was, that was death penalty stuff in the Old Testament, right? We don't, we don't do that anymore. But nevertheless, if it ever carried the death penalty, it should still matter to us. And Paul is saying this is what's happened and, and, and saying, you guys know this. You've buried these people. You, you've gone and visited them and brought them soup. The supper is not trivial. It's not indifferent. It's not just kind of symbolic pageantry. It should matter to us. It must be done with reverence and awe. It's part of worship. Reverence and awe is not, that's not just me finding $5 words. It's from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So we can offer to God unacceptable worship that is irreverent and absent of all, 
It should be full of reverence and awe. And then the author gives a reason why. For our God is a consuming fire, not a warming fire, not a cooking fire, a consuming fire. And what is that in connection to directly? Worship, which is where we take the Lord's Supper. So if we take the Lord's Supper, then it must be done with reverence. It can't be made trivial. It can't be silly. It's not something that we just go, eh, you take that. It doesn't really matter. That's why I, what I tend to try to do every Lord's Day morning is, is keep a tone of sobriety around it. And I know that we have people visiting us, and I know that there's people here, so we explain it every time. I'm not trying to be heavy by reading the judgment parts of 1 Corinthians 11 every week, but nevertheless, we should know it, and we should consider it. It should, it should be serious upon us, not because... We think that we can lose our salvation. We know that we cannot. Not because we think that God is unhinged and the slightest misstep will rain down instant judgment on us. Not because of any of those things, but because we know who our God is and we know the price that he paid for our salvation. And we know that we still deserve hell, but we've been given grace. So we should come soberly thinking about those things, not in a depressing way and not in an obsessing way, but come soberly to the table, contemplating what it really is. But it shouldn't be void of joy because what does the, the end of the passage that I always read say? For in doing so, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that moment is only joy for the believer. It's exclusively joy for us. So that element is there. But the Lord's Supper <coughs> is, is uh, a sacrament of the two that we have that has been, in a sense, kind of disregarded or trampled on. So I think we can make an argument for, oh, man, 6 o'clock. I think, real quick, I think we can make an argument for doing it every week. I think you can make an argument for doing it once a month. I think you can make an argument, as people have in the past, for doing it once a year or once a quarter because of the way that you think about how do we reverently do it. Every week I need a reminder of my sin and a reminder of grace that supersedes over that. I need that every week. But also you could say, well, we need it less frequently so I can prepare myself to get ready for what it's going to be and then wrestling with those things because it's so big. So you could see it going really either way. And we aren't given a pattern on how often to take it. We are just given a pattern for preparation to take it and that we must do it. So... Do this in remembrance of me. Absolutely. Well, let me pray, and then we will stand and sing. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for teaching us of this great sacrament. Lord, we know that we have, I know that I have, often overlooked it or seen it as unimportant or um, perfunctory, just some kind of religious pageantry. Forgive me for that. Lord, forgive us for, for looking lightly upon it. You told us to do it, and you told us far more explicitly how to do this than even baptism. So may we not take lightly what you make so plain, and, and may we look forward to it, not, not fear it. We look forward to it because we know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
So being confronted with our sin is not to beat us down and to keep our eyes looking earthward, but it's to lift us up and pull our eyes, yank it off of this dirt and place it upon the heavens. We're not considering ourselves at all at that point, just the glory of your son and the work that he did of salvation and redemption, reconciliation, justification, adoption, and sanctification on our behalf. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the gospel made visible. Sometimes we need to see something, and you've given us that. May we use it rightly in our church. May we guard it rightly in our church. May we never supersede your word as it pertains to your supper, but may we never undermine the supper as we have instructed from the scriptures. We thank you that you've blessed us with it to take as we gather and also that what we are chiefly to do is to remember you. Remember you and what you said that you are coming again, that there is a day when we will never take this again. We will look you in the face, face to face, and you will have our tears bottled up You will have all sickness walled out, all sin, evil, pain, suffering walled out, all good, all pleasantness, all joy, all exaltation, all elation walled in. We look forward to that day. And may you use your supper in our church to build into us an anticipation for that day. Thank you, Lord, for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray.